today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today on the show, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger stops by for his monthly town hall to discuss his plans for cannabis and the LRT, among other things. And should incoming judges be required to attend training on sexual assault? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. The Mayor's Town Hall. Earlier this week, we had uh, Burlington Mayor-elect Marianne Mead Ward on the program. And today, uh, we get back into our routine. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is back with us uh, in studio. Good to see you again. Good to see you, Bill. It's good to be uh, back. And uh, we had a little uh, a little break uh, to kind of recharge the batteries uh, you know, over the last couple of weeks. So ready to ready to go. Well, because uh, we're heading into, uh, well, the swearing in ceremony coming in, so the new council will be elected. And you guys have to hit the ground running pretty much, don't you? Yeah, we, we're going to be uh, right into the uh, the budgets. Uh, the cannabis issue will be uh, front and center as we uh, come into uh, into the new new term, right in December. And then, uh, obviously, we'll have a bit of a Christmas break. But uh, the, the budget shall be the uh, the, the pr- predominant uh, thing that we're going to have to delve into. And, you know, we're uh, hoping to uh, to manage our budgets as we have in the last four years at, uh, at reasonable rates. But there are, you know, always pressures, uh, you know, additional pressures in terms of infrastructure and transit and uh, you know policing might uh, might be an, an added pressure this year so uh, you know we're gonna have to manage our way through that and uh, hopefully we'll come out of it with uh, a reasonable rate I should mention by the way that uh, we will open the lines up at 905-645-3221 645-3221 star 9900 is a toll-free number you can reach us by email b kelly at 900 chmail.com and on Twitter at chml bill Kelly your questions your comments for Hamilton mayor Fred Eisenberger as uh, get, we get rolling into the, uh, well, the next uh, four years of term. I want to talk about the cannabis situation because yep. it's a very contentious issue. I've talked to some of your council colleagues about this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we know that there's a deadline that uh, the municipalities are supposed to meet when they have to either opt in or opt out on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's probably going to come up sooner than later. Now now that some of the details about what the province is setting up, and i.e. the parameters, uh, I'm hearing a lot of your colleagues having some second thoughts about this. <laughs> Well, I know, I, I, you know, I understand it. Some of them are ideological. Others are, you know, worried about the proliferation of uh, cannabis stores. And, you know, all of those are legitimate concerns. But, uh, you know, I, I have to be fair to the province. Uh, I would have preferred that they have picked the uh, the LCBO model. I thought that was, uh, you know, a positive way to go. But they uh, went in a different direction. They decided to go on the private retail side. Legislation has been passed. And uh, they put in some pretty stringent uh, controls. Thank you. Uh, that uh, will uh, require them to be treated not unlike uh, they're treating license alcohol licenses for bars. So you have to apply. You know, City of Hamilton could be a commenting agency. We, you know the drill. Uh, we don't have authority to decide whether they get one or they don't, but we, we have the ability to comment on radial separation, location, all of those those kind of concerns that we might have. Well, they, they, sure they, 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 they set the parameters for radial separation, and, and I talked to Councillor Collins and a couple of other folks about that, and uh, they're concerned that it's it's not as well. It's, it's funny that during the election campaign, Ford criticized Wynne for her idea about radial separation, and the one that they're proposing and that is now enshrined is, is half the size. Yeah. So, um, you know, I suspect that, uh, I mean, I'm hoping... Personally, I, I don't know that opting out is going to be an option uh, that, uh, that's going to be wise for us because then you're just going to encourage the, the illegal operators to continue to operate out there. People are getting this product one way or another and have done for decades. So this is not uh, you know new territory for the illegal operations, and I don't want that to continue. And I think over time that will abate itself if we, if we opt in. And there was also a monetary issue. So there was a, uh, for Hamilton, I think it's about a $600,000, you know, benefit that we might get from, that we will get from the province to help offset some of our costs if we opt in. If we don't opt in and then opt in later, we get $10,000. Uh, and that doesn't change. So $10,000. So later on, you're not going to get the $600,000 benefit annually to help offset any of your, uh, your ongoing costs. So there's going to be many factors that uh, we're going to have to delve into that the staff are going to prepare, I think, a comprehensive report. It'll look at issues of radial separation, public health, uh, the licensing regime that the province is putting forward. And then council will have to make a decision. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, that we uh, we don't get into the opt-out scenario. I think that's just going to, to engender more illegal operations. And we'll have a, that ongoing cat and mouse game between police and licensing and uh, I don't think that's helpful. I think, uh, you know, having a clear, you know, uh, idea about uh, moving forward on this, on a legal product, this is now nationally legal. Uh, you may like it or not like it, but the reality is that it's not the same kind of problem as alcohol. So, you know, when we get the public health report, 
Uh, it shows alcohol in terms of abuse and, and problems in terms of crime and other things way, way up there. And cannabis is almost minimal. Uh, no, no really, uh, you know, negative, you know, overriding issues that come out of uh, cannabis addiction or cannabis use. So all of those factors will come to the table and council is supreme at the end of the day and we'll make a decision as to whether we opt in or opt out. Do you share some of the concerns that, uh, that I know that a lot of the councillors and candidates, frankly, heard during the campaign? Uh, some of it based on myth. Uh, you know, I, I still think every time you talk about cannabis, people in, conjure up this image of Cheech and Chong and figure those are the people that are going to be in the stores and we don't want them hanging around our schools. But, but and the council's going to have to deal with those myths at some point, neither debunk them or, or you know, give in to them. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of myths associated with this. I mean, this is not like this product hasn't been out there. Uh, you know, this, I mean, we, we all well know that uh, people have been using and, uh, you know, surreptitiously, I guess, uh, you know, getting that product one way or the other. And now it's much more formal. And I haven't seen a whole lot of change in the broader community. The policing reaction is exactly the same as it's always been. If you're intoxicated for any reason, whether it's a pharmaceutical drug or, a, you know, a, an illegal drug, uh, and you're driving, that's a that's an issue, and they're going to be dealing with it the same way they always have. Uh, smoking uh, is not allowed in parks and, uh, you know, many, many locations throughout our city, including bars and restaurants and taverns, and that isn't going to change, and that's people are not going to be sitting in a restaurant with somebody next door, you know, smoking a spliff. And you know what? In, in many instances, this is uh, this is more about um, uh, alternative uses in terms of uh, you know products that are going to have cannabis in it. Uh, you know, people have this conception that it's going to be people rampantly smoking out there. Well, if you currently don't smoke, I don't think you're going to be picking up. Uh, you know, marijuana smoking, you're probably going to go to a, an alternative product uh, like a brownie or whatever it is. And we're, and we hear that, uh, that some of the beverage producers are looking to introduce cannabis, uh, you know, laced drinks as well down the road. And so legalization has changed the whole dynamic and people have to wrap their heads around that. And I think that's going to take some time for some people. Um, but I think, uh, you know, accepting that and then getting on with solving some of the, uh, the, the impacts and issues, I think is the way we need to go. One of the concerns that I've heard from our listeners an awful lot of the time, and it goes back to the discussion about radio separation, is they don't want this near schools. And, and, and that's obviously a, a situation and a factor. But mm-hmm. are, are you comfortable that the restrictions the province has enacted here, uh, in other words, you can't even get into the store until unless you're 19 or over, uh, and, and of course the fact that this is a legitimate business now. I'm not suggesting that we should, you know, have a proliferation of these around every school, but I'm I'm wondering if there's a real concern here or it's just an imagined concern about the kind of clientele and the impact that they're going to have. Yeah, no, I think I think the concern is more to do with uh, with uh, underage use and consumption. I think that's a that's a major concern. Uh, radial separation, we'd like to see it bigger. And I think what what would I'd like to do is, is send back to the province some comments about you know where we can actually extend that radial separation away from schools. Uh, I think that uh, that makes some sense. Uh, but I think people have to really kind of uh, start thinking about, uh, you know, the fact that this is a legal product now and whether they like it or not. And, you know, some people don't care for alcohol and, and, and don't like the idea that it's generally available. Well, it is generally available. So let's not, why, why treat it now any differently than we do alcohol in, in that sense? And, you know, knowing and understanding that the alcohol-related problems that we have, whether it's through health or, 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 or through policing and other, is, is much, 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 much greater than cannabis will ever be. So th- with those things in mind and with those points in there, the, the, the other rubbing point that I get from counsel, and it comes down to money. It always does, doesn't it? So there's always a, yep. a money factor here. Mm-hmm. And, and as you mentioned, there is transitional money that's available for those cities that opt into this. Right. But what I'm hearing from councillors, not just here in Hamilton, but from Burlington and, and from Toronto, for the council that's being sworn in there, is, look, at this is a revenue generator. We want a piece of the pie, uh, not unlike the gasoline tax. Uh, the province has said no, and, and you know what it's like trying to get money out of the province. It's like blood out of a stone. So, I mean, do you, do you just set that aside for now, or is that, is that a, hill, no, a hill worth fighting for? No, I think, I think we push back on that, but I, I, don't, I don't think opting out is, is going to give us the answer that we're looking for. I think we, we opt in and then push back on some of the, the, the parameters that the province has put forward in terms of radial separation. Let's look for longer distances, and if we can get some I, mean, I talked to the uh, the director of AMO yesterday, and they they certainly advocated on the, on the private retail side, but also said uh, collectively that we need larger radial separations. We need to give the uh, municipalities the opportunity to license uh, fees 
a little differently than we do on regular, uh, you know, business licenses. The province has said, you know, it's the same as any other business. There's going to be a lot of money made here. Why can't we not carve off some of that re- revenue to help us on, on localized issues? As opposed to them collecting the money and us going to them cap in hand saying we need more resources for policing and licensing and all the other impacts that might come as a result of this. So I think it's a better model in terms of letting, letting us collect the revenue up front, sharing some of that, and then uh, using that uh, revenue to offset any, any uh, negative costs. Is the policing issue here really just a white elephant? I mean, you know, as, as somebody told, when we had the discussion last week uh, on the program, they said, look, I don't see any cops hanging around LCBO stores. Uh, I mean, you know, are we, are we worried about something here that's probably not going to happen? No, I think I think the policing issue is more a short-term issue in terms of illegal dispensaries, yeah. not not kind of longer-term, uh, you know, monitoring who's doing what where. I mean, we don't do that in alcohol. I mean, you're not you're not allowed to consume alcohol in your car, and you're not allowed to consume it while you're you know walking down the street, and so uh, you know those are kind of common issues. But we don't we don't have you know the the use cops out there on a, on a day-to-day basis on those issues. But but on the illegal operations, that's a, a lingering concern. It's a it's an irritant that I think that needs to go away. I think we need the province to start enforcing their $250,000, uh, you know, fees against landlords that actually license or allow these operations to come into effect. And we need, uh, you know, local local police to, to, to help us shut down these uh, these operations. Now knowing that the legislation is in place and all of the legal ramifications are also in place, we need the, the courts to actually follow through in not allowing these folks to walk out of the court and then go right back into opening up another operation. So there's a number of things that have to happen, and I think those costs are the ones that we're talking about on the short term. It's uh, worthy of noting, and I'm sure that when you have this debate at uh, City Council that staff will supply you with this information, mm-hmm. that uh, the industry is already here in the Hamilton area uh, and, and doing quite well. As a matter of fact, one of them just expanded and took over that huge property over in Stony Creek that you mm-hmm. see on the Q- Queen Elizabeth Way, the old uh, sports company. In terms of a growing growing operation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and hydroponic operations. Right. So it would seem somewhat... Uh, counterproductive to say we opt out, even though we're going to benefit from it here because those people are paying taxes, obviously. Well, and they employ new businesses. They employ a few people. people. And we keep saying that small to medium-sized business is, uh, you know, the mainstay of uh, how we're going to grow our, continue to grow our economy and employ people. Well, today, whether you like it or not, it's a legitimate business to have a licensed, uh, you know, cannabis operation, you know, come April. They're going to be allowed to apply for a license and get a license from the province, and I think we have to accept that notion. And it becomes, you know, part of the regular stable of you know small to medium sized businesses that we have in our community, including the, the grow operations. And they're, you know, they're also very strictly regulated and licensed, and have been for fifteen years. Yeah, it's not like they started yesterday. They're, you know, the whole medical marijuana aspect of it has been, uh, you know, quite well developed over the last fifteen years through the Harper government, in fact. Uh, license them through uh, through their, uh, their their health organizations with very strict regulations, <clears throat> and obviously concerned about robberies and uh, you know theft of product and, and that contributing to the illegal market, and so that's been pretty well uh, defined and well controlled, and now very much a part of. I think we have six or seven grow operations in the city of Hamilton, and and they're all expanding, and so it's uh, it's an industry. Whether you like it or not, uh, you know if you can. We, if we shut ourselves out from it, then it'll it'll drift somewhere else, and somebody else will get the benefit of the employment, and the uh, and and the growth opportunities that exist in in actually creating this product in whatever way and shape or form it takes. This is very similar to the discussion we've had about other uh, economic development issues, and that's really what this falls under. The guys of economic today development. it does. Yeah, yeah, this is a growth industry right now, and if you say no to this, and they decide to go someplace else, they're not going to come back in five years and say, "Can we come back now?" They're already is. is Established there. I mean, this is a one-time opportunity. Yeah, yeah clearly. I mean, the opportunity is now, and uh, we're at the the front edge of this, uh, you know, developing industry. And uh, if we if we let it pass us by, then it's going to be very very difficult for us to pull it back. Now, that that may satisfy some people. Uh, I don't think in the long term, if this product isn't bona fide legal, I don't see how that's going to change. I don't see another government coming in and saying now we're going to you know we're going to stop the legal use and consumption of uh, cannabis. The, the you know the horse is out of the barn on this one, and uh, this is going to continue to be a, a, a product that, that's going to be available to people. And of course, we want to make sure that people uh, you know use this product in a safe and uh, reasonable way, and not allow it to to be consumed by underage children and being purchased by underage children. So all those rules should apply, and uh, be mindful of uh, you know uh, abuse. 
uh, of the product, and that's possible, although not not prevalent, but uh, certainly possible, and public health will certainly be weighing into that when they do a report uh, on the 18th of December. So we're having a, an all-day GIC. I've asked them to, rather than doing it just at planning, bring the whole thing to a general issues committee and let's ha- have all members of council there and let's everybody hear the same issues and let all, you know, people in the community at large come and delegate and speak to the issue, uh, you know, from their perspective, including those that are interested in opening a licensed location. So uh, it'll be an interesting day and I'm sure it uh, hopefully will come out of that with some clear direction. I've got about 10 seconds here, but I mean, mm-hmm. I, it would, it's your expectation then that council will render a decision at that meeting? Probably not at that meeting. I think we'll, we'll, we'll get the full uh, presentation. Because pretty close to the deadline. Yeah, so uh, the, the deadline is January 22nd, and uh, we're going to have a December the 18th meeting and uh, a January 14th special council meeting to finally decide. Let's do a break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes. Uh, we will go to your phone calls in just a couple of minutes as well. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com. And on Twitter, that's chml Bill Kelly. Uh, the Mayor's Town Hall, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here in studio. We're back after this on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here in studio. And uh, if you want to get in and make a, a, a call, you want to get a question in, a comment about what's going on in the city, uh, don't wait till 955 because we're going to be out of time. Uh, get on the line right now, 905-645-3221, start 9900. Still got a couple of lines open. And, uh, well, we'll go to your calls right now and uh, find out what you want to talk about with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Hi, John. Welcome to the program today. Good. How are you? Ta- top of the world. That's good. I'd like to know uh, Mayor could answer the question of uh, homelessness, affordable housing, and everything else that we're putting our money in, Riverside and this stuff here, but I see Trudeau, he cries about the national housing strategy, and mm-hmm. I see him out in Calgary, $145 million, Vancouver, Edmonton, millions of dollars. I haven't seen him in Hamilton giving anything for affordable housing or housing strategy right. for Hamilton. Well, and that's, and that's a good point, uh, John. Uh, we, we, we put our $50 million housing poverty plan uh, in place, and uh, that's going to be helpful, but there's much, much more to do. And our argument has been that we need a national housing strategy from the federal government, and uh, they've promised to uh, deliver one, and I think in some measure they're making those kinds of announcements, uh, you know, across the country. So, uh, you know, we're anticipating a similar kind of announcement in terms of how they're going to help uh, the Hamilton area in terms of affordable housing uh, provision. And so we need to build more affordable housing. It's very expensive to do. It's about $300,000 per unit. But we need uh, the help of the federal and even the provincial governments to uh, to actually catch up on the, the shortfall that we have in our community. And there's about a, a 6,000 member waiting list. So it's a, it's a clear and present problem. And uh, we've put some significant resources on the table that uh, don't impact the tax, uh, the tax issues. But uh, certainly provide, uh, you know, resources to do more. Uh, but there's much, much more that we need to capture. And uh, some of that's going to have to come from our federal and provincial partners. You realize there's a, there's a political angle to this whole thing, too. I mean, that may be a little crass, but that's the reality. Is that sure. There's an election coming up in about eight months. Uh, and there's a budget, a federal budget coming up probably in February. That, that's usually when they start making those announcements because they want to try to get the maximum political swing from those sure. things. And, uh, you know, I anticipate that uh, when they do that, they'll be uh, making announcements in all the various communities that uh, yeah. they're hoping to have some positive impact in. And, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, politics 101. Uh, but, but the reality is the need is out there. So, uh, you know, it would be wise of the federal government to actually make that kind of an investment. Uh, you know, the, the demand is not decreasing. Uh, precarious employment, uh, poverty issues are, uh, you know, are, are, are facing us and have been. And, uh, you know, for a country the size of Canada with our collective wealth, uh, we should be doing a lot better in terms of providing affordable housing for people. So I'm, uh, uh, you know, we're doing our bit as a municipality. Very rare that uh, a municipality would do fifty million dollars more than what they're already doing in terms of uh, affordable housing, social housing. But uh, I thought it was an important step for us to take so that we can be ready for any kind of partnership funding that comes from our federal provincial partners. I, I know it's beyond your control, but it had to be disappointing when the the Ford government decided to kill the Green Energy Act. Uh, there was an awful lot of money that was going to go to uh, retrofitting the affordable housing units that you already have, and that's gone now. 
Yeah, and it's uh, I mean it's uh, that and the, uh, the the decision to pull away from the basic uh, the basic income pilot. I think both of those I think were uh, misguided uh, in approaches based on ideology. And I you know, I don't understand the ideology around climate change and, and energy retrofits. I mean it just makes sense to to provide uh, you know investment opportunities for people and offsetting some of those costs to inspire the industry to to grow and to do the retrofits that are going to be so important that actually helps reduce our kind of long-term operating costs. And so I think it's an an unfortunately uh, narrow-minded approach. And the basic income pilot, uh, you know, it's so sad that uh, we've got, you know, an opportunity to actually demonstrate a better way of delivering social services that uh, basically got cut off at the knees. And I think it's uh, certainly disadvantaged a lot of people in four of our communities. We we did approach the... uh, federal government to see if they would uh, pick up the program to its end, at least to get to a point where, where the research would have some value and, and really demonstrate one way or another whether this is a better way to go, a more cost-effective way to go. But uh, we'll never know at this point because uh, they're, they're reluctant to pick up uh, a provincial responsibility. So we're kind of tra- trapped on this one. But I'm hoping that they uh, they put a, you know, a, a much stronger focus on uh, you know social assistance beyond saying, we just need to give everybody a job. I don't, you know, I think that, that, that is kind of a narrow-minded approach that, uh, you know, sounds good when you say it, but uh, the reality is that's never been there for a lot of people. Um, you know, unemployment has not uh, ever been zero. And so there are, you know, numbers of people for whatever reason, and, and probably not a cause of their own, are going to be challenged. And uh, I don't think that that's shrinking. I think that's growing. The other element to this and I haven't had a chance to talk to you this obviously since since the election mm-hmm. is 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 the government and I'm talking about the provincial government's uh, attitude right now uh, when they slashed and killed the uh, the green energy act basically saying well you know we don't want to pay somebody uh, to you know, to get their with their insulation done or new windows done uh, I, simply I think ignoring the fact that, that that the push right now is towards green initiatives and green energy jobs right. not just in that sector but producing that sort of stuff producing uh, those sorts of materials and and maybe the best example of that we saw just uh, this week with the tragic situation about closing the GM plant in Oshawa uh, GM said quite frankly we are already moving towards electric cars and we don't see the support for it here and that's why we're not going to do these in Oshawa that's that's a, a pretty bleak statement to make but I mean it's it's cause and effect to a certain extent it's uh you know unfortunately it's kind of a trumpian approach to uh, to climate change and energy uh, energy production and you know and the, the previous government took a lot of flack for you know putting time money and resources into energizing the uh, the energy sector uh, alternative of energy specifically. Uh, it, it is the way we need to go. I think most people that uh, that think it through understand that climate change isn't weather, it's climate change. And so, you know, we have, you know, the, the debate going on, well, it got cold this winter, therefore climate change isn't real. Well, that's not the, that's not the point. It's it's the overall, you know, the impact of, uh, of uh, CO2 uh, emissions and how that impacts the overall climate change in our community. So, climate change calls for uh, radical temperatures on either side of the spectrum. Too right. hot, too cold. Exactly. It's not just too hot. And, and how that impacts, uh, you know, the various parts of our community, whether it's, uh, you know, enhanced rainstorms, and we're all already looking at oversizing pipes because we know those storms are more frequent where we can measure them now. We uh, It's not some, something that's unknown. And so all of those things uh, require uh, new technology and new ideas. And, and for us to invest in that, whether through the province or, or through municipalities or federal government, is a wise thing to do. Uh, I think that's why the federal government is also focused on transit. You know, they understand that public transportation as your country grows and expands and the population increases and you don't want all of those CO2 emissions, then you have to find some other cleaner technology to actually replace that. And public transportation Mm -hmm. is the the direction that the federal government has taken as an opportunity to actually have an impact on climate change. So I'm I'm frustrated by the provincial approach here. It's, uh, like I say, very Trumpian, just to to ignore the fact that that climate change is real and not really spend time investing in alternatives that actually is going to serve us over the long run. And energy retrofits. The benefit in energy retrofits is long-term operating costs. You reduce operating costs, and that's money back in your pocket. So there's a payback period in all of these uh, th- these initiatives. And the payback isn't very long anymore. It used to be if you got a solar panel, it'll take you 25 years to actually get the money out of it in terms of the expenditure you would put into it. Now it's two or three years because the cost of that, because the government invested in alternative energy, the costs of those panels now have come down because they sell that many more. So it's a, it's a worthwhile investment. I'm hoping that the government... Uh, sees the light of day and goes back to 
formulating an energy um, a regime that actually deals with some of the climate change issues and future energy consumption. Well, because that's where industry is going, and that's that's the kind of industry businesses are, are shooting for right now. And it's not just General Motors, by the way. Back to the the car, the car example, it's all of them that have said, you know, we're not ready for full electric cars yet, but that's where we're going. It's and on the horizon. Yeah, and, okay. and, and if you're not there, then you you know what, you're not in the race anymore. Right, and you know, the folly would be that, uh, you, know, you, you know, we know this is happening, and then someone comes along and says, let's build more gas stations. Well, that's not where this world is going. We need more electric charging stations, and you know, the Limeridge malls of this world have kind of recognized that and put in a large charging array, and you know, other, other companies are starting to build that into their processes as well. And, you know, right today, uh, you know, I asked about about a half a year ago for the HSR to uh, to bring in some electric buses and start testing them to see, you know, how, did, how does that work in our environment? Uh, you know, what about the escarpment crossings? Do they work the same way as our current buses and are they cost, uh, cost effective? Let's find out because if we can we can purchase those vehicles uh, into the future. They will need charging stations. We'll need alternative energy sources to actually do that. And then the the, the industry as a whole will need to look at how are we going to produce this uh, this electric energy that's going to be required to recharge all of these vehicles, and and how are we going to create that? If we're going to create it the same old way, then we're probably going to have the same old problem. So what alternatives are we, are we going to be looking at to generate this new regime of electricity? I, I know the big knock. I know we're getting off on a tangent here, but, uh, <laughs> but I think it's a, a discussion that needs to be had. Yeah. Uh, the, the big argument here is that, well, this is Canada. We drive longer distances than other places, and uh, right now electric cars just don't make sense. You know, if you want to drive from here to Collingwood or here to Ottawa, I don't want to have to stop for an hour and a half to charge the car. Th- they'll fix that. You know they're going to fix that. I mean, that's the way it is now. I mean, hey, cell phones used to be the size of footballs. They're not anymore. Right. I mean, technology will fix that problem. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and uh, Tesla, to some degree, has fixed it already. I mean, you uh, there's a quick charge you can you can get, 20, yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, so you know, the length of time it takes you to grab a coffee and go to the bathroom as you're taking your trip out to Collingwood uh, is the length of time it might take to, to recharge your vehicle and, uh, and get another 100 or 200 kilometers out of that. And, you know, and, and if we think about the way most of the vehicles are being used, uh, most of it is commuter. You know, commuter use, right? 20, 15, 20 kilometers yeah, yeah. Uh, in and out on a day to day basis. And then on occasion, uh, you know, there's a 300 kilometer or 250 kilometer trip. So uh, all of that, uh, you know, the range for these new electric vehicles now is uh, 300, 300, 400 kilometers per charge. Uh, so you're, you know, the, the range is there. It, uh, it, it's not a big issue anymore. And the chargeability, I, I think Tesla actually one time talked about swapping out batteries. So You'd come in and, uh, you know, you're, you, you, need to, you need to charge up. They'll just take the battery that you have in there and then, then put a new one in there and away you go. I think the battery, I think that, that technology is probably not a perfected the way it is because it's not the, the same battery size that we're accustomed to in terms of the batteries we have in our gas, gas guzzlers. And so uh, the battery is actually the, the entire floor of the, the vehicle, so it's not that easy to do. But that was certainly one concept that they conceived of, and you're right. But that technology will solve it. They'll figure it, they'll, they'll they'll figure figure it out. They'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900. Uh, email bkelly at 900chml.com for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You knew that this question was going to come up. This is from Phil on email. Mm-hmm. If the new city council votes no on LRT, will you accept that decision and move forward and deal with pertinent issues involving our city? Well, I, look, I know this has never come up, but it's, it's, it's in conversation. Yeah, it's a new, uh, it's a new it's idea. A, yeah. Um, uh, look, I mean, I just ran an election on LRT. Uh, you know, so the the, the opponent made it <clears throat> made it his mission to, uh, to 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 knock down LRT. That was his one issue. Uh, <clears throat> I want a majority uh, majority in the city of Hamilton. Uh, I don't think no is an option anymore. Uh, the people have spoken on this uh, by a majority. You know, the, the, the and I'm, I'm not taking this personally, the number of votes I got based on the platform that I put forward was greater than the number of votes that were delivered to Larry Deany when the expressway was finally built. And so, uh, you know, let's get on with this. Uh, you know, let's, let's stop kind of unwinding this. Let's stop talking about what's in it for me. And, I, you know, I hear that from some people. You know, in in other places, Waterdown or Stony Creek. Why, yeah, but you why, heard that during the Red Hill debate. Why should? Well, exactly. And and you know, and, and you can you can apply that argument to just about any facility that the city builds. So, what's in it for you know people in Stony Creek to build a Harry Hall Arena in Flamborough? Well, probably not a heck of a lot, uh, but it's for the greater good because the need is there. And so we do do all of these things for the greater good. And I'm hoping that people will come around to that, including members of council, understand that, you know, the people in this community have spoken pretty loudly about what their preference is. 
Not everybody, but certainly by majority, and that's our democratic process. And so let's now get on with this, and that's the that's the direction that I'm going to take. But to his point, uh, is do you anticipate there will be an up and down vote on this with this council? We'll see. You know, right now it's uh, it's full steam ahead. It's an approved project, and until somebody says stop, uh, you know, we're just going to keep going, doing the work that's necessary to build this thing. I mean, it's approved. It's approved through Metrolinx. It's approved through the province. And so uh, unless the province comes forward and, and does something proactive to, uh, to stop this process, uh, we're marshalling on. And I think that satisfies most members of council. Uh, if, if there's a need for an up and down vote, then we'll, uh, we'll certainly bring it forward. But right now, it's, uh, it's full steam ahead. Let's get this project built. There are some of your uh, council colleagues that are suggesting that they want something in writing from the premier that that money is solid. Uh, look, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I want to put the province in a box right now. I think we're working with them. Uh, we're, we're, you know, getting getting uh, the, uh, the the bureaucracy to understand the importance of the LRT. There's a whole new crew of people there now. Uh, a lot of them are uh, are former uh, Harper, uh, you know, uh, operatives that are now working in the uh, in the uh, the provincial realm. Uh, so we want to get those people informed and uh, up to speed on uh, the importance of LRT. Uh, obviously, Metrolinx is doing that. So we're we're using all of our levers to get people educated on why it's so important for the city of Hamilton, and remind them of the, this past election and the, and essentially the way people voted on. Uh, what they want to see their their city move forward on. And, you know, it was certainly part of my mantra. So it, you can't say that uh, I wasn't totally supportive on LRT. And the opponent that, uh, that ran was totally against. And that was his only issue. And he wasn't successful. And so let's take that message to the province. And I'm sure they're listening and watching. Uh, they understand the mood of the community at large. And they've said, whatever the city of Hamilton wants, uh, we're going to be able to support. And uh, I think the message from the city of Hamilton is we want LRT. The uh, advantage here, and I mean, even the perception here, is is a little bit different from an ask that cities are usually making because they have already said yes. Correct. As and as a matter of fact, uh, when Doug Ford was running for this job, he he reiterated that that he would support this. So it's it's a yes until you hear it's a no. If in fact you ever hear that, but that's basically it. And uh, you know, we're hoping that uh, we work with this uh, this current government so so they just have a full understanding. And I know you know they're they're looking for savings. I understand that uh, you know. But this this is long term finance project. This is uh, you know they're not going to have a short term benefit by saying no to this project. Uh, there, uh, this is long-term financing, debt financing. In fact, through uh, through the uh, the, uh, the design, build, finance, operate, maintain process, uh, it is out for tender. Uh, what we do need, I think, is a signal from the province that uh, that the the folks that are going to tender on this thing can can pick up their pencils and get busy because uh, they're they're kind of waiting for a clear signal from the province as well. And so, uh, you know, that process is a, a little bit delayed, but all the other work that, that's needed to be done, including, uh, you know, defining the uh, the route and underground services, uh, all that preparatory work and money being spent and property that's been acquired are all going to continue to go forward except for the the, the land acquisition issue, which, which got kind of got caught up in the, the overall provincial freeze on any land acquisition anywhere. It wasn't really identified for specifically for the uh, Hamilton LRT. It was just a blanket statement saying, stop all land acquisitions until we uh, can kind of get a better handle on what's going on here. So uh, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's a move forward. Uh, council is, uh, I think, by and large, happy to, to let this thing just proceed. Don't force me to vote on anything right now unless it's absolutely necessary. And then, you know, if it is necessary, then we'll do that. Uh, heard pretty positive. I know we just about out of time. Pretty positive response from the new people on council about this as well. Yeah, by and large. I mean, I think they uh, we've got some new members that uh, that are fully supportive, and others that were you know kind of waffling and on the fence. And uh, I think at the end of the day, if it were to come to a vote today, given uh, given the election result and given the monies that been, that's been spent, and the time that it's taken to get here in terms of twelve years of effort and work. Uh, I think the vote would be a majority support to move forward. Uh, Ten seconds left. Uh, you want a good night out? Go to the swearing-in ceremony. It's next week. Oh, it's always a bucket of fun. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it'll be a, yes a great night. Uh, we'll have some treats and coffee, cakes, and cookies. Everybody's welcome. Uh, it's on at five o'clock on December the third, which is Monday. Uh, and so uh, there will be room for uh, anyone that wants to attend. And, of course, uh, we have tickets for those that were actively part of the Location, uh, the, the location. Campus. At City Hall. There you go. Uh, as, as we would like to do most of our major uh, major events. And uh, everyone's welcome. And uh, we all look forward to kind of getting on with uh, the work that we need to do going forward. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, as always, thanks. I look forward Thank to you, another man. series of town hall meetings over the next four years with the mayor. But we'll you. see you before Christmas. You bet. You okay. will. All right. Good. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
it was a couple of years ago now that uh, we did a segment on the program uh, about a bill that uh, Rona Ambrose had presented in the House of Commons. Uh, it's uh, Bill C-337, and, and essentially uh, the bill is, is suggesting that uh, all potential judges uh, would have to go through mandatory sexual assault training. And this was uh, in light of a number of, uh, well, rather disturbing comments we'd heard from judges that were adjudicating over sexual assault trials. Uh, some of the comments they made about uh, survivors and uh, some of the questions that were asked of survivors by judges and some of the, frankly, opinions that some of the judges had rendered. And uh, Ms. Ambrose actually thought it was necessary that uh, that they also, all of them, and not the judges, but people that want to be judges, uh, would have to go through this mandatory training. Well, uh, the bill eventually did pass the House of Commons uh, with all party support. And of course, you know our system, it has to move on to the Canadian Senate. Well, it's been sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. It has not gone to committee. And doesn't seem as if uh, any of the senators want to move on this anytime soon. As a matter of fact, some of them have actually gone so far as to actually criticize the whole intent of the bill. So what's the deal here, and is this a necessary piece of legislation? I want to bring Jeff Manishin into the conversation, criminal lawyer with Ross McBride, former Crown attorney as well, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. How are you this morning, Jeff? Oh, just great, Bill. How about you? Great. You and I had this discussion a couple of years ago, didn't we? I don't know if we ever have. I, I think I remember... Certainly reading about this proposed legislation, but if we did discuss it, it wasn't in any great detail. Well, I'm not sure that we knew a whole lot about it because it was only a proposal then. And as you say, it's developed a bit of a life, having gone through debate and and committee hearings in in Parliament. Uh, Talk to me about the intent of the bill then. Let's let's talk about that from your experience in the courtroom. I guess the obvious question is, is this necessary? Well, we'll back up two steps, and I, I will confess to you, Bill, having gotten the call from Liz this morning about this news story, I hadn't read the bill, so I've read summaries of it. What I'm not clear on 100% is that all judges, do all judges have to take the training or simply new judges? What's your understanding of it from what you read? My understanding, and I've only read the overview here, which is only a couple of pages long, and as you know, bills are, like, are much longer than that usually. Uh, I'm getting the sense that uh, it's, uh, it's training for those who are aspire to be judges. Okay, and then the other part of it, too, is um, the responsibility, if memory serves, under the British North America Act for, the resp- for, for uh, jurisdiction, the province is responsible for the administration of justice. Um, the federal uh, government is responsible for criminal law. So we have federally appointed and provincially appointed judges. The question of whether or not this law is meant to apply to the federally appointed judges or to all judges is an interesting question, too. Do they mean to make it applicable to anybody who's going to be serving to apply the provisions of the criminal code? Well, that would include both uh, provincial court as well as superior court judges. I don't recall whether the bill speaks to that specifically, but if we say it's the law of Canada, then presumably it applies both federally and provincially in terms of appointments. Is that why she would include it then as a national bill? Because it would automatically, by definition, then uh, also be applicable to the provincial courts? Well, I think that she's doing it because she was, I think, uh, involved with the conservative government. So she's not doing things, she can't do things at a provincial level. Okay, but she may feel that this is, she felt, I guess, that this was something worthy of being addressed at the federal level and so presented it in Parliament. And from things I've read, it appeared to have gotten bipartisan support. So if she's sitting as a senator now, or at least if she's beefing about the fact that it hasn't, it's stuck at the Senate level, I guess it's, she's picking up from where she left off. She felt strongly about it back then and is distressed to see that it hasn't progressed now. Uh, uh, there's a comment here, and this may be, may be clarified what you're asking about, about uh, who actually would ha- be have to go through this training. Uh, former independent Senator Joan Fraser, uh, who retired, was uh, discussing this and said uh, she didn't think it was either appropriate nor wise for Parliament to be getting into the fine details of dictating what legal education must include for judges. Uh, Ms. Ambrose disagrees and said the bill isn't about telling judges what to think. It's about targeting judges sitting on the bench. It's about targeting lawyers who want to be appointed one day. It's about creating confidence. So to that question, I guess it is both. It's both sitting and those that want to be. Sure, and so if we stay with that one for a sec, Bill, and let's go on that basis. I have to say to you that uh, if I was a judge, I think I'd probably take some offense at this. I'd say, why are you telling me? And and let's say, for example, and it's not going to happen because I'm not applying, but if I was applying to be a judge, and I worked as an assistant crown attorney for eight years, prosecuting everything from murder on down, including sexual assault cases. And then let's say for the next 20 years I defended sexual assault cases. And you're going to say to me that before I become a judge, I have to take a course on sexual assault law? That's what I've been practicing. 
That's what I've been doing for years. What's, I, I would have trouble seeing the need for training that way. Now, if, on the other hand, you're appointing a judge who has no background in criminal law at all, why do we say their training should be restricted to sexual assault law? One would think that a whole, they're dealing with all aspects of the criminal code, murder, fraud, robbery, charter of rights, wiretap, drug. They should be getting training in all those areas of law, and presumably they get, they do. Um, I think what happens, Bill, and you and I have talked about this one many times in the past, you have one or two cases or a handful of cases that get some public attention, and suddenly there's a cry to change the whole system. Do you know that right now if you have decisions such as some of the ones that have gotten a fair amount of coverage, the Canadian Judicial Council, National Judicial Institute, they have educational programs all the time for judges. And part of those programs will focus on recent important appellate decisions that will inform judges on what is and isn't appropriate with respect to considering all kinds of legal issues, including issues on sexual assault offenses. Now, sexual assault offenses do carry with them some specific concerns. There are what are referred to commonly as rape myths, and a judge shouldn't say, well, no woman would do this, or you know, to, to try and question some aspect of behavior that might be based in a myth that's no longer applicable, and you can't make your decision based on that. And there are cases in which decisions have been reversed, and the Court of Appeal has said that. That's what judges get training on. Why do you need specialized courses and training I think it's an overreaction, and I am concerned about an intrusion on the independence of the judiciary. That, let's talk about that. And, and again, I think Ms. Ambrose was quite upfront about this when she talked about the bill when it was first uh, initiated. Uh, and it was a response to some of those uh, cases that you've just referred to. Uh, there was the, well, the, he's now become known as the, uh, why didn't you keep your legs closed, Judge? Uh, and the other one is, you know, and you've heard some of these, I'm sure, in all your years in, in the courtroom, Jeff. You know, uh, why'd you wear that that kind of outfit when you went there? What'd you go to the bar for in the first place? And 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 I think that there's a, a probably a, a compelling story to be made here that look, at, there's a, a lack of sensitivity in some cases. But can you legislate sensitivity? Well, that's that's the question. And of course, Bill, you know that I'll keep my defense counsel hat on and tell you that I read a decision not that long ago where a trial judge in convicting someone said in relation to the defense of consent and the defense position on how the complainant acted, oh, no young woman would have behaved that way. I can't believe a young woman would have done such and so and consent and thus consented. And the Court of Appeal re- reversed that judge for having gone the other way in terms of taking the wrong view, a distorted view, in convicting. And there have been reversals of convictions on sexual assault cases. I think there was a judge, I could be wrong in name, I think it was a Justice Zucker in Toronto who convicted a guy and said, oh, I've read studies and I'm familiar with the research and this is how this is considered and your story is fantastic. We give them the extra things that I've read and so forth. And I'd pelt you. I'd say, what are you doing? You decide the case based on the evidence and reversed it. So I, I don't take the view that because there have been acquittals or because there have been questions asked at trials by judges that are the subject of criticism at an appellate level and a potential reversal means, oh, we're going to presume that all judges need the training because they all make these mistakes. Just a minute. Okay, there, there are, I'm sure, hundreds of sexual assault cases, trials that go on across Canada every year, more and more now than ever, I would say to you, Bill, I've seen a significant increase in the number of sexual assault cases I've had to deal with. Significant. And we don't see criticism on a national level of the way in which judges every day conduct sexual assault trials. So if I said to Ms. Ambrose in the year or year and a half or whatever since you proposed this law, tell me about how many cases you can point to now that show the pressing need for judges to have to get this training, I bet you'd have a pretty short list. And I might be able to match her with my list of wrongful convictions. What's the process, Jeff? Uh, we, we talked about the, uh, you know, why didn't you keep your legs closed situation. And I, I can't remember the exact procedures, but uh, there were uh, disciplinary actions taken. There's an appeal, obviously, but there were disciplinary actions taken against that judge, were there not? Oh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, it went all the way to the Canadian Judicial Council. That was an unusual one, Bill, because... I think he, was, he had done this trial as a provincial court judge. He subsequently got appointed to the federal court, so he wouldn't have been dealing with criminal cases. But his conduct in the provincial court was subject to review because of questions he asked him to show an insensitivity to the complainant's circumstances and views and all. And he ultimately, it, was, it went to the Canadian Judicial Council, and the recommendation was that his, sorry, he basically be discharged as a judge, so he retired 
And it was it was a situation that got, as you say, national attention. And there were, there have been other cases. I think there was a case maybe in Nova Scotia where there were allegations of sexual assault on a young woman who was very intoxicated, I think, by a cab driver. And there were some questions about the way in which the judge had run that trial. Um, so certainly we do get some. And, and I will say this. I think that with the enhanced attention and scrutiny that's given to judges approaching sexual assault trials, I would tend to believe that they're more sensitive than ever. And there is a body of case law that has been developing where it's in terms of the scope of what can and can't be even put to a witness in cross-examination, Bill. Leaving aside for a minute what a judge does, what is and isn't appropriate scope for cross-examination and how that, that gets assessed and what restrictions might or not, might not be put on. So we're, we're dealing with it all the time in the courts, and the appellate courts, trial courts, are, are refining and reviewing and correcting and developing the law in this area without the need for mandatory training. So you feel the checks and balances in the system are, are sufficient to be able to handle any misconduct that may, or alleged misconduct that may occur? I do, and here's the other. If we say this, Bill, if the training is going to include, if the focus is going to be things, and, and from what I've read, I did read a summary, do you know that part of what's required is that there's be, there be compulsory training in sexual assault law? That's number one. Number two, judges would be required, ready for it, to give written reasons for judgment in sexual assault cases. And that further, the Canadian Judicial Council should have to report on the continuing education programs that they're doing in sexual assault matters. I see. So if you say, number one, there's compulsory retaining in sexual assault law, gee, I would have thought that a significant social evil is the drink, is drinking and driving, potential fatalities matters in that regard. Are we going to have compulsory training on that, too? There have been murder cases that have had to come back where trial judges have made mistakes in the way they've instructed the jury. Should we have compulsory training on how they instruct juries in murder cases? You know what I'm doing here. I'm giving you this yeah. sort of extension. Sure. In addition, judges are really busy, and experienced judges can... At the end of a trial, hearing submissions can go back, sit down, and be able to draft out what they'd want to do by way of reasons and give them without having had them all typed and written out. We're going to say not good enough on one category of offenses, sexual assault offenses. You have to do written reasons. Really? I think that's extreme. I, I'd really be concerned about telling a judge how to do the, his or her job for one particular category of offenses. And this is the government doing that? Remember, we always talk about the separate and independent bodies in, in our government, the executive and the legislative and the judicial branch, and we say that each has its own responsibility. I have a lot of concerns over the government getting into micromanaging how judges do their jobs for one category of offenses. Well, and that's variations on a theme of, of a discussion you and I have had, I think, over about the last nine or ten years, uh, is, is crossing that line, or at least blurring that line between, uh, between the, part, the, the, part, the political and the judicial end of things. I mean, there are a number of pieces of legislation from the previous government that you and I had talked about uh, where you uh, assumed, and based, I think, on strong evidence that you presented to us, that that government had crossed that line and we were basically handcuffing uh, the judiciary. Uh, most of that legislation subsequently, I guess, got overturned at the Supreme Court, but which I guess validated your arguments into this. Do you feel that this is a, a, in that same genre? I do. <clears throat> I do. Um, and we're talking about the mandatory minimums. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, and, and I'm going to go back and say this, Bill, and this is again the drum that I've banged before. Before you're going to get into the realm of providing federal legislation in the area of criminal law, I believe that you should need to have an identifiable need for it. In other words, uh, a body, it's almost like evidence-based medicine. You know, you hear that phrase, Bill, evidence-based yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. and that. Where's the evidence-based need for legislative reform, and it is not anecdotal. It can't be because there are three trials that got a lot of coverage. We have to enact this legislative change. That's going to affect all judges. Same issue for mandatory minimums. I mean, the fact is, if you have a case that gets sensationalized these days, uh, the reaction on, on some governments is, say, oh, we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that. You remember years ago, the issue of changing the law in relation to pardons? Yeah, There was a rumor that Carla Hamolka was going to apply for a pardon, or there was a concern raised, I think uh, uh, it was by Theo Flory about Graham James applying for a pardon. And so the whole legislative scene got changed, and the Criminal Records Act and the Harper government quadrupled the cost of applying, extended the length of time before you could get it, and changed the name. We don't have pardons anymore. They're now called record suspensions. There was no identifiable need for that change, but there were headlines. 
And what I don't like, Bill, and boy, you've heard me speak about it vehemently, I don't like legislative change that's driven by headlines. Headlines can't be the basis to say we're going to change the law. Now, fine, this one had bipartisan support, that it's stalled in the Senate. That's the old concept, the concept of sober second thought. Good. But this is this is a, again we've seen examples of this in the past, and I don't disagree with you that this uh, this is obviously motivated by headlines and the reaction to those headlines. But is it also uh, partly because of of a, a lack of information that most of us have about the checks and balances within the judicial system itself? In other words, we heard the same outrage about a month ago when Paul Bernardo had a, a bail hearing. He shouldn't be allowed to. Well. Yeah, the law says he should be, and you know what? The system looked after itself. He was denied. Sure, at the parole hearing, you mean, Bill? Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. 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 Well, and in fact, if we spend a minute or two on that, uh, I have said to you in the past that I don't think that my colleagues in the legal profession do quite as good a job as they could in terms of informing the public on issues such as these. One of the reasons that I get the phone call from Liz at 7.15 saying, can you come on, and if I can, I do, it isn't simply to spout my own opinions on things. It, part of it is to try and inform, the same part, major part, is to inform people on how the system does work and give a perspective that they don't otherwise get from somebody who's been practicing in this area. And, you know, I know how, inter- how interested you are, and I, I think your listeners are too, because obviously that concept, of knowledge is power. The more you know about the way the system works, the more you can kind of go behind the headline and try and say, look, what is and isn't necessary. And the phrase that always gets me is, oh, we have to maintain the public confidence in our justice system. Well, does that mean we have to do so by legislation telling judges what they do and don't have to study? Or do we do it by discussing how the system does and doesn't work and keeping things in perspective, keeping things in context? Clearly, there's a need for sensitivity with respect to the way in which sexual assault trials are conducted and decided. And the courts are dealing with that. And if judges go offside, then appellate courts will will correct it, and there are ongoing judicial education programs all the time to ensure judges are dealing with these things correctly. Well, you know, and I've talked about this in the past, I mean, you know, that phrase that people always love to bandy about, let's kill all the lawyers, uh, from uh, Shakespeare's Henry VI, Part Two, uh, was uttered by a guy in that play who wanted to take over the country, and he knew that lawyers were the ones that kept order, and if you get rid of them, there's no order, and that way he could take over. Uh, so there's method to the madness, and there's another Shakespearean quote. Yeah. So uh, upward and onward. Jeff, that's why I always appreciate when you have the time. You're a busy guy, too, and to come on here and try to explain this and, and show uh, exactly what, what how this system works, and then it does work. I think that's the most important message. Yeah, what's the phrase, speaking truth to power? Yep. That's what you're trying to do in remembering. I'm just giving you the opinions that I've got in relation to this. But because I'm not involved with any political party or affiliation, I can just simply say, if, if I think legislation is well-founded, I will say it. If it's not, I'll tell you. And you just did. And that's yep. why I'm, I appreciate it. Thanks, okay. as always, Jeff. Good Thanks. talking with you. Yep. Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer with Ross McBride here in town. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.